This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. Ingenuity for life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On November 8th, eBay CEO Devin Wenig, three of President Trump's key technology policy advisors, and Silicon Valley Congressman Ro Khanna joined other policymakers and experts live at the Washington Post to discuss the promise of new technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and 3D printing. In this segment, The Washington Post's Brian Fung talks with eBay CEO Devin Wenig about how his company is affected by government regulation and the forces of global competition. Let's listen. Morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Washington Post. Uh, we're excited to uh, present this um, fantastic session today. Uh, joining me, I've got Devin Wenig, the CEO of eBay, and Devin has been the CEO for the past three years. Is that correct? Three years. Yeah. Great. Um, well, Devin, welcome. Thank you. Thank. I'm really pleased to be here, and thank you to the Washington Post for the uh, really important role you're playing in our democracy. Thank you. Uh, I thought I'd just start out asking you about. You know, your time as CEO, um, eBay is obviously a very different company from when it began um, so many years ago. Tell us what's changed, what's the future of retail and e-commerce going to look like, um, what challenges you face, what surprised you as CEO? Yeah, I think for, for eBay, it's a company that everybody knows, but uh, not everybody knows now what we do. It's a very modern end-to-end e-commerce place where people do all their shopping. We're approaching $100 billion of sales. We operate in uh, almost 100 countries around the world. And it's been a stunning transformation to see how technology has changed the retail landscape. Uh, there is no distinction anymore between e-commerce and commerce. You're seeing it break down every day. If I go into a store and scan something and walk out and buy it, is that commerce or e-commerce? Or if I buy something online and pick it up in a store, uh, the lines have fully blurred. So. Technology has had a role of disrupting the retail industry, and now it's reconstructing it. And for us, we want to be a different place where people uh, browse and shop their passions. We want to be uh, always a place that is uh, unique and fun and interesting shopping experience, but also very useful and a place that people can count on and re rely on. In many ways, our mission goes back to our founding, which was the enabling of small business. We're sort of champions of entrepreneurs. And that's what a marketplace is about. So it's, it runs really deep through our company. So we try to run a competitive, customer-centric, world-beating e-commerce company with a strong sense of mission around inclusive commerce and the enablement of entrepreneurship. What are some of the, the big problems that you're, you're working on right now? And what keeps you up at night? <laughs> I uh, sleep like a baby. I wake up every hour crying my eyes out. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the big problems in e-commerce around the world are making technology work for consumers. It's things like logistics, getting packages from point A to point B. 
It's trust, giving people confidence in what they buy. It's using really interesting emerging technologies in ways that aren't only cool but useful, like image recognition. AI is going to be an incredibly important force in society. For us, that starts with using things like the ability to take a picture and search for something. So, you know, these incredible technologies start small and then they become big. What AI does for us today is a number of things, but one of them that is becoming very useful is oftentimes when you shop, like if I like your tie, I could try to describe the tie as purple and it has dots, or I could take a picture of it and actually uh, computer algorithms are getting so good that it is much more efficient for me to take a picture of your tie and have it show up in a second and have me able to purchase it than to try to type it in text. So the way humans interface with computers is becoming much more visual, much more speech and text-based. That's an enormous paradigm shift. Uh, for us, that means how do we make that work for commerce but automobile manufacturers are thinking about that. Um, the real estate industry is thinking about that. Every industry is going to go through a really fundamental shift as AI changes the way humans and computers work together. So um, I understand you're, uh, you're only here in Washington for a short trip, but on previous trips, you've spent a lot of time talking <laughs> to policymakers, regulators. Um, tell us about some of those policy discussions you're having. What are the key issues? Um, what do regulators want to hear? What do you want to hear from them? I think one of the biggest surprises in my three years as CEO is the amount of time I have to dedicate now towards regulatory and policy issues. And my peers in Silicon Valley would say the same. I think it's not good or bad, it's just a fact. I think that if you dial back to 2015 and I predicted how I would allocate my time, I would have hoped that 90% would have been on products and customers and then investors and obviously employees. Uh, a meaningful part of that pie chart has been taken up by not just Washington, but global regulatory issues. And in the last few years, we've seen an extraordinary breakout of issues around trade and taxes and immigration. And these aren't sideshow issues. They're incredibly important. Uh, privacy. And uh, how I, I think what you're witnessing now is as technology companies have gotten more and more powerful in society, people have recognized that they have responsibility, which of course they do, and how we handle the role of technology in society is every bit as important as all of the other things that we're talking about uh, in government, uh, legis uh, in a legislation, le legislation or regulatory agenda. So for me, it feels like 2018 has been the year where technology and regulation are uh, at an absolute crossroads. And so it's taken an, an immense amount of my time. How much of that increase would you say has been the result of the Trump administration specifically? Some of it has. Um, I think we were going to reach this moment anyway. Mm. I think that when you've got platforms where the majority of people are spending the majority of their time, it would hard to, it's hard to imagine that we wouldn't have reached this moment anyway. I think it might be that this administration has quickened the time and quickened some of the rhetoric around it, but I don't think technology was going to remain immune when you've got platforms that have billions of people that are spending trillions of hours on them. It's unrealistic to think 
we were never going to have this discussion. So um, just drilling down a little bit more specifically now, uh, you know, how much has uh, the president's trade war with China, the tariffs, how much has that, have that has uh, impacted your business? Not yet, but I, I am certainly concerned about it. You know, for us, I've been very vocal about there are issues that I care about that go to me to the heart of our business. I care about trade. I care about free trade. Uh, there hasn't yet been a direct impact on it, but if you think about what we do, we operate a very large commerce network around the world. One of the ways that I try to describe what eBay does is we're a tech company. If you looked at the majority of my employees, they're engineers. They're people writing code. They're people working on products. But they're doing it in service of small businesses in the United States who support themselves, who want to sell things around the world. The, the magic of e-commerce is in a world before the Internet, uh, you could sell to people on your block or in your city, but that wasn't a very big audience. N now you can plug in, and we have 100 and almost 80 million customers around the world, and if you have a product, you can sell it to anyone in the world. That's the magic of e-commerce. And when I talk about things like AI and image search and these very sophisticated technologies, they're in service of real people, real small businesses in every town in this country, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, we bring them into our headquarters. These are um, single moms. These are war veterans. These are, you know, real stories of people who are supporting their families and who need technology to be able to create a global customer base. Uh, trade wars aren't helpful. You know, trade wars end up being, um, we talk about them up here in theory, I see the impact if we end up with a series of mutual tariffs, if we end up constraining trade, if we end up, uh, uh, if we end up with unfair friction and the unfair burdens on moving goods between uh, across national borders, the impact's going to be on U.S. small businesses. That's where the disproportionate impact is going to be. So I try to articulate that to anybody that will listen, and we really hope that this gets resolved and that we can go back to promoting and promulgating free trade. You recently told your sellers um, that if you're selling to states like uh, Washington, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, um, Oklahoma, uh, they, they could be affected by a recent Supreme Court decision on online sales taxes. Have, have you already started to see that you know, effect play out in, in a lot of places? Oh, sure. We knew it was going to happen. I think it's a really bad policy, personally. Uh, it's the uh, ultimate politician's tax because you get to tax people who can't vote for you. So every state is now implementing taxes on out-of-state sellers uh, who sell into their district, and why not? Free money, and um, they're, not, they're not voters in your district. So I, I think that what we've advocated for is if we're going to have a tax, we should have a national tax. The national tax should be simple. It should be uh, not complicated and done uniformly and once. I think that's what the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution was all about, is not letting every state break out and do its own thing. And I think that there should be an exemption for small business because there, it's, a, it's a regressive tax on small business. 
This, you know, this is not about eBay's taxes. We pay our taxes. This isn't the amount of tax eBay the company. We're a big company. We're big boys and girls, and we can, we can handle ourselves. This is about our base of the small businesses that rely on us who now could get dragged into literally 10,000 tax jurisdictions across the United States to audit their one sale to somebody in a faraway place. I mean, it, th this all doesn't feel very good, and it literally does feel like the reason the Interstate Commerce Clause exists, which is to create a national market and not 50 sub-markets. Um, you know, the, the online um, commerce industry has, you know, been attributed to, uh, you know, people have said that it's responsible for a decline in the brick-and-mortar uh, retail experience in, in that sector. Do, do tech companies like yours have a responsibility to, um, to, to those brick-and-mortar uh, folks? Uh, look, I think we have an immense amount of societal uh, responsibility. I don't think we have a response. I think we should build a great product. And in building a great product, if there's disruption, that's capitalism. And I, I don't apologize for that one bit. In fact, in fact, I think the irony is you're actually seeing brick and mortar creep back in now. So the fact is people, consumers vote. And consumers aren't dumb. And you know, I don't think that stores are going away in the world. I think a lot of the stores that exist in the world are pretty lousy experiences. I think if you're a store that grew up in a pre-technology world and you had a local monopoly, people had to go to your store because you had stuff in it and you had to buy what they told you to buy at the prices they told you to buy it at. I think what the internet has done is it's blown up local monopolies, it's given consumers choice, Stores that are winning are stores that add a tremendous amount of customer service value or a tremendous amount of entertainment value. You don't see Apple stores going away because people like shopping in Apple stores. But there are a lot of stores in the world that aren't that experienced. They're actually soul-destroying. And they don't have a reason to exist. And uh, they should be blown up. And the Internet should blow them up. And then if they get reconstructed in some other form that creates more consumer utility, that's great. That's progress. Prices go down. People get a better experience. Uh, bad customer experiences go away in favor of good ones. I want you to talk a little bit more about you know, this broader idea of the tech industry's responsibility, the social responsibility, because we've been talking a lot this year about you know, Facebook and Google and the role that they play in you know, uh, U.S. public discourse or global public discourse. Um, where do you see eBay fitting into that? I think, first of all, I think it's imperative that this industry takes that responsibility seriously and doesn't give it lip service. And I mean that on two levels. The first level is, this really matters in our society right now. I am worried, we, all, we are all worried about the discord we see in our social conversation. That can be better or worse. And if you're a platform that is enabling trillions of conversations, um, there are things you could do every day that make that better or worse. You know, it's, I don't want to connect dots and see us get more and more fragmented as a society. Social cohesion, the ability to be respectful, the ability to, um, to grow together, even if we disagree about politics or other issues, 
I mean, this is really important as American citizens right now. This isn't about Silicon Valley. This is about America and where it, where it goes. On another level, let's just, let's just take a naked business purpose. Forget high-minded citizenship. Um, it's really dumb to uh, ignore what's happening in the world if all you care about is your bottom line. Because the idea that we can grow immensely valuable companies with immensely wealthy people and leave a lot of people behind who are feeling worse and worse about the product is not sustainable, right? It just is never going to happen. If society doesn't become part of this conversation, if society doesn't embrace and want to see things like social networks become part of it, I mean, I, I go around now and people tell me I'm just weary. I'm just not spending as much screen time because it's exhausting. You know, the level of discord is exhausting. Okay, put aside your view about whether that's good or not for uh, our society. It's obviously not good for business. If people are worn out because of the political chatter on a social network, they're not going to be on that social network very long. So eBay is not strictly a social network. It's a marketplace. Yeah. Right? But, um, you know, and, and the thing that's been sort of uh, central to this debate about tech companies has been their access to data. And even though you aren't a social network, you do have a lot of, of data and information on your customers. We do. Um, how, how do you think about um, you know, the future of, of privacy? Um, there's a, a push in Congress right now to develop legislation um, that could conceivably cover uh, all, uh, you know, all 50 states. Um, how do you I, think about, what kind of proposals would you be comfortable with? Yeah, I, I do think that where we're heading is the notion, starting at the highest level, that privacy is a fun, fundamental human right. I think if you go back and look at, I don't want to go back too far in history and get us all back to our history class, but if you go back to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and before that the Magna Carta, there was this idea that there are certain rights that are so close to being human, humanness, that no person or government should be able to separate those. Fast forward to 2018, uh, I don't see why privacy is any different. I don't see why the idea that you should have control of who you are and you should have control of your data is all that different than you should have the right to free speech. They seem on the same level in 2018. Now, how that manifests itself is really important. I don't think that means that people shouldn't give their data freely, but freely is, is the operative word. You know, I think that what tech company, where this has gotten really hot in the debate is I didn't know you were using my data that way, right? And that's not okay, right? It's I am happy to give my data to certain companies that build me a great experience as long as I know that that data is controlled and it's not, it's going to help make that experience great. That's the way I try to approach it at eBay. I say, I don't want to hide data from people. I want people to say, wow, if I make my data available to you, it's gonna stay in eBay's ecosystem and the product is gonna be so personal that I don't have to search through two billion items. You know what I want and I'm gonna get it faster, easier. You'll show me things that delight me. That's a good experience. A bad experience is I never knew you were selling my data to a bunch of advertisers and now all of a sudden they're showing up in my email and what's going on here? And I think that um, 
the, the notion of privacy as a fundamental human right has to ultimately be one of control. It has to be one where people, are, there's transparency and there's control so that people feel comfortable and then they, if they're gonna give up their data, they do it freely. So it sounds like you're coming down on this idea of, uh, you know, maybe, you know, consumers uh, having to opt out of sharing um, their data with you on a first party basis, but having to be asked explicitly whether they would affirmatively opt in to share their data. Well, I think parties. there's a, see, I think what's happened, I think the idea of, say, GDPR in Europe is a good idea. I don't think it's been implemented very well. Mm. And I almost think that we started from the bottom rather than the top. The reason I started at what are we trying to solve is that's the most important thing and then we can discuss the wiring. You know, we were slapping cookie banners on websites before we were answering the question of what are we really trying to solve. And I, I, I don't, so we're doing it, we're, we're following the law, obviously we follow the law, but it's been clunky, quite honestly. And I think that the US, if it was gonna go down this route, could do it very, very differently and do it better. I all in, but let's start with what privacy problem are we trying to solve, and then let's have a really adult conversation about what are the ways that we can do it without screwing these companies up that are uh, really shining examples of innovation here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I want to switch gears really quickly, but before I do, I wanted to remind the audience, if you want to submit a question, feel free to uh, use the hashtag um, 202Live. Uh, we're monitoring those questions. By the way, I just have one suggestion on 202Live. It looked like an error code on a web page. So <laughs> I, I realized it took me a little time not from here. The 202 is the area code of Washington. But I thought it was like, is that a 404 error time? <laughs> Um, uh, maybe we can turn it into some kind of pun on, on internet uh, culture. Um, uh, We're so, having a cultural moment here, you see. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask about something that's been in the news recently. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, you guys sent a letter to Amazon, um, which I should mention, uh, the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, is also the owner of the Washington Post. Um, I think most people know that. <laughs> uh, and um, you were... Uh, calling on Amazon to stop trying to poach sellers from eBay's uh, platform. Tell us what you were witnessing on, on, on your website. I, you know, look, I, I don't want to get into too much of it. There's litigation. I'll just say we, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Amazon. We try to operate in a different sphere. There is some overlap. Uh, we have a network that we built up over 20 years. We saw activity that we thought was violating our agreement mm -hmm. and was not okay. We tend to try to resolve disputes without lawyers. This one couldn't be resolved without lawyers, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Hmm. Um, in Washington, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about antitrust. The president has uh, targeted Amazon specifically for alleged violations of antitrust. Uh, the, um, just kind of curious whether you think there's a competition problem in America um, particularly in the tech space, and if so, you know, what to do about it? I mean, I, I'm not going to comment about any particular company or uh, party, but I, I do think that what you're seeing, and probably necessarily so, is an evolving definition of what anti antitrust is. I'm being a little oversimplistic, but the historical north star of antitrust is consumer pricing. It's, are consumer prices coming down or are they not? And if they're coming down, everything is okay. But let me paint you an example why I think in a digital era it's not that simple. 
So I have a service and people like that service, but it's competitive and there are a bunch of other services, so I'm operating in an efficient market. And now I, uh, I don't know, I buy a bakery and I buy a record store and I buy a car wash and I cut the price in half. All good, right? But then I say, you can't use the bakery and the car wash and the record store unless you use my first service. So who's being harmed? Well, in that town, it might be that all the other car washers are now going out of business because this guy has bundled their services and has cut the price in half. And what emerges out of that is less consumer choice. So I, I don't think pricing is the only consideration anymore. And I think that we've really got to ask kind of if you're endlessly allowed to bundle services, is that end, is that, uh, does that end in a robust competitive consumer market with choice or the opposite? Do you face economic pressures to enter into other markets, but to bundle services sort of as you, as you just put it? I mean, we, we face pressure, we face competitive pressures in every market we operate in. E-commerce is a wonderful growing market, but it is amongst the most competitive markets in the world. So, I mean, we, no more so than here in the United States. Um, last question I wanted to leave you with. Uh, talk about the future of, of net neutrality, um, which is a, an issue that I cover very closely. So I'm very curious to hear where, where you think that's going. Uh, we are, uh, we are advocates and promoters, and we've been very vocal about net neutrality. I think it's a big mistake to uh, undo net neut neutrality. And it might be non-intuitive for a big company because, if anything, net neutrality would favor big companies. You know, imagine uh, you could pay a toll on the road. Those that can pay the toll should have an unfair advantage against those who can't pay the toll. But uh, you know, I really do think back to the early days of the internet and the infrastructure and look at this incredible economy that it's created. I mean, the fact that the internet was free and open literally spawned one of the greatest industries the United States has ever had. And it is an industry of unique American competitive advantage. You know, for all the problems that we have and the problems we've talked about, let's not forget that the technology sector is an American gem. It is an absolute shining beacon of innovation that every country around the world covets and wish they could have. How did that all happen in a number of ways? The education system, the immigration policies, but it also happened because the internet was free and open and it didn't put barriers on the road, and lots of small companies could experiment and grow and fail and try again, and eBay was one of those, and Amazon was one of those, and, a bunch, and Google was one of those. Uh, I don't wanna see any, if, if, if we're gonna be a company that says we stand for entrepreneurship and small business, it would be pretty counterintuitive for us to say go net neutrality, because now we're a big company. Mm -hmm. Devin, that's all the time we have uh, today, but thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.